It's never too late for people to eat healthy. People always ask, I have kidney disease, what should I eat? And I tell them the things that you, you're supposed to be eating, more fruits, more veggies, whole grains, get rid of all the junk food, get rid of all this processed meat, even get rid of the sodas and everything else, fried foods. So I tell people to eat what is essentially a whole food plant-based diet. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Let's start today with a statistic. An estimated one out of every seven adults in the U.S. has chronic kidney disease, and nine out of ten of them have no idea that they do. So that begs the question, is your diet helping or hurting your kidneys? Something to ponder and something that we will be exploring with Dr. Shivam Joshi on the show today. He is a board-certified plant-based nephrologist in New York. And while many patients with kidney disease are told to avoid or limit fruits and vegetables, Dr. Joshi often prescribes a plant-based diet for his patients. So why is he doing something completely different than his colleagues? We're going to be learning about that with him. And then ask yourself the question once more. Is your diet helping or hurting your kidneys? You know, it wasn't until I began working with the Physicians Committee that I realized just how big of a problem chronic kidney disease actually is. When we began to open up the doctor's mailbag and take questions on the show, we got so many about this. So I'm really pumped to be able to provide some answers on the program today. And also on the program today, you are going to meet the future of medicine. You may already know her on social media as Beats by Brooke. She is studying medicine in Texas. Check that. She is studying culinary medicine in Texas. And her positive outlook and passion for plants has already attracted tens of thousands of followers on Instagram. And I'm sure more than a handful are already trying to book an appointment with her after she graduates. So we're going to get into a lot of things with Brooklyn today on the show, like what is culinary medicine and how popular is that among the medical students where she's going to school? And because she's in Texas, we're also going to be talking about the COVID-19 outbreak there. You know, Texas now, one of the hardest hit states in the entire U.S. Certain areas of the state, hospitalizations, just through the roof. A lot of facilities maxed out as far as the number of patients. So we're going to be getting into that with Brooklyn as well. Plus, we're also going to be discussing the pressure she feels as an African-American woman to be a leader in the health community right now at this critical time of change 
when people are listening. So it's going to be a really incredible conversation. But before she and I can get to chatting, let's start with Dr. Shivam Joshi and find out whether your diet is helping or hurting your kidneys. As we continue here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee, time now to take a look at kidney disease and plant-based diets. And for that, we welcome Dr. Shivam Joshi from the Bellevue Hospital up in New York City. He's also a clinical assistant professor at NYU's School of Medicine. Dr. Joshi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I would be really neglecting my duties as a journalist if we didn't start with your experience with COVID-19 up in New York. Uh, We were talking just before we started rolling here about you having the opportunity to work on the front lines. I assume during the height of the pandemic, what was that like for you? It is, it, it, uh, it's something I will remember for the rest of my life. I will tell my kids of age, they will ask me where I was and I was doing my duty in the hospital. Um, and it was, uh, it was our Katrina up here, you know, when New York got hit hard, I, I you know, this is, uh, I'm in Manhattan live from my Manhattan, uh, uh apartment, my 350 square feet, uh, shoebox. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but, um, uh, yeah, I was, we were in the thick of it. Uh, March was a rough month and, uh, so it was April and May started easing up and I, as a kidney doctor, so my role was to work uh, inside the hospital inpatient side. And anytime someone got admitted with, uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, or for any other reason, and they had a kidney problem, they could have had it for a long time. They could have been on dialysis, had kidney failure. Or maybe they had normal kidneys and they came in and their kidneys stopped working because of the disease. Uh, I would get called, and what we did was to uh, treat these people. And uh, I think what uh, caught us off guard was the the numbers. We saw the we saw the reports coming out of China. There is this famous uh, New England paper uh, that came out in I think January or February. I remember reading it and it said that the incidence of people having kidney problems was very low. One percent, and I'm you know, I read that, and you know, and after this all happened, I talked to a few other kidney doctors, and they 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 mentioned that same paper. They say, oh, one percent, and you know, we all thought, oh, that's not a big deal, and we were in for a surprise. And uh, the number of people that had kidney problems, the number of people that had coronavirus, one was, uh, you know, caught us off guard, you know, caught everyone off guard, how quickly this thing spread, how much community spread there was. Uh, Fortunately, New York did the right thing, which was to close down the city. And I think that really prevented a true catastrophe. I mean, mean, not to say that things didn't reach, go past crisis mode up here, uh, uh, because it did. Uh, but uh, the, the numbers of people who had coronavirus was unexpected. And then the complications from those things, the number of people that were having kidney failure or respiratory failure or this problem or that problem, just all across the board was just much higher than expected. And then all of a sudden you have all these people that need dialysis and uh, you're not prepared to have that many people on dialysis. And then you have the manufacturers where you get the supplies for dialysis telling you, oh, 
we're out. Uh, we can't ship you any. We can't. You you need you need uh, you know, let's say ten boxes of X, Y, and Z. We can give you maybe two, and you know, it, two 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 wouldn't even cut it under normal circumstances. And now you're you you have a need that your need is like twenty. So it's just you know, and this was happening hospital across after hospital across the city, and uh, we did things that we normally wouldn't do. We we turned to different types of dialysis. So the standard dialysis is you have this big machine that sits next to you and dialyzes you using your blood. But we went back to uh, some older technology, which other countries that have less means use, but is as we turned out just as effective and efficient at doing dialysis. And we use it's called perineal dialysis. We put fluid in the belly, and this is what people in Mexico and India and all these third world countries uh, use because they don't have uh, the societal resources to fund hemodialysis. And uh, the to make that switch and to transition to that. Uh, caught us off guard but we were able to do it um it would those those weeks uh were a little hairy uh a few nights i didn't sleep uh, you know there's a few days that you know we were really pushed into some tough uh, situations where we had to treat people the best we could and ration and make decisions uh but uh, uh we survived uh we learned a lot and hopefully we're prepared for the the next wave and i tell people my friends that work in other parts of the country stock up, get ready, um, because that <clears throat> that curve, once it starts going, it it it, it goes. A couple of things I want to talk to you about there is one, you were talking about that rate of prevalence in that initial paper, one percent over in China. I'm assuming that was in Wuhan very early on. Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, I think it was 0.5 or one percent. So it was a very small number that didn't catch anyone's eye you know i thought coronavirus was something that i wouldn't even have to get involved with right right do you think that there might be a correlation between those small numbers there and the larger numbers here based off of dietary differences and the rates of chronic diseases that we have here in the states that might be a little bit lower in china yeah that that definitely could have played a part um you know uh, americans in you know the the city are definitely uh, unhealthier than your rural Chinese person in Wuhan province. Uh, the other thing is, uh, were they were they reporting accurately? You know, did they filter out some people? Did they suppress some evidence? I don't want to, you know, uh, 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 discredit the paper, but yeah, uh, some of the some of the things we experienced are just different than what was reported. So and and now obviously New York has done a tremendous job rebounding but then you look at what's happening currently in other parts of the country where the rates of infections are just skyrocketing a matter of fact as we record this just yesterday nationwide we set the record for most cases in a single day how much concern do you have that you could see a resurgence in New York City maybe in the fall as the weather turns cold yeah, I think I think New York City has a pretty good game plan. I like uh, Governor Cuomo's approach. I, you know, when this was happening, um, there was not a lot of great leadership at the time, especially at a national level. So a lot of people in New York uh, turned to Cuomo for those daily briefings. Um, uh, many people that live outside of New York may not have seen them, but 
they happened every day at around lunchtime, 1130, and you could log on and you could see him talk. And he would talk about the statistics, both in the country, the world, and in New York. And it was just nice to, to, to get that sort of guidance. And uh, his approach is, in, in a, to be short, is that basically we're going to reopen, but we're going to monitor and see how the virus is spreading. He has a bunch of different parameters, you know, hospital rates, the positive coronaviruses tests uh, that he's getting and other things. And that, you know, if, if those numbers go too high, he's going to close the, 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 the state, uh, reduce the reopenings and maybe close some things and go back to where it was. New York, I'm not too concerned about. What It's the other uh, cities and states and other parts of the country that do not have a... Uh, science-based approach towards this or a, 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 an approach that's based on disease transmission or a pandemic. You know, it, you, you can't ground this on uh, exclusively on people's uh, desire to go outside or livelihoods or economic things. There's, there's uh, a death toll at the end of this based on our, our actions. Um, so uh, my, my, my folks, they live in Florida. I grew up in Florida. I consider Florida to be my first or second home, however you want to look at it. And Florida is a state that concerns me a lot. They're in a peak right now. And, you know, they may have a resurgence again in the fall. Let's talk about the main focus here. Coming up August 6th through 8th is the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, of which you, sir, will be a featured speaker, presenting on plant-based diets for kidney disease. Now, I know that there is some debate raging out there whether somebody who does have issues with their kidneys should even consider adopting a plant-based diet. In the research and in your experience, what have you found? Is that a good decision? Yes, yeah, so I think it's a good decision. I think it's uh, it's never too late for people to eat healthy. People always ask, I have kidney disease, what should I eat? And I tell them the things that you, you're supposed to be eating, more fruits, more veggies, whole grains, get rid of all the junk food, get rid of all this processed meat. Even, you know, you're probably eating too much meat to begin with and, you know, get rid of the sodas and everything else, fried foods. Um, so I tell people to eat uh was essentially a whole food plant-based diet. But the thing is, is that the kidneys serve this important purpose to keep all your electrolytes and all these things in order. And when your kidneys stop working, some of these things can accumulate. And if you, you can, this is the standard of care is actually to tell people not to eat fruits and vegetables right now. So that's the crazy thing. What I, what I do, so when I come across patients, they are just blown away. Uh, or confused, or both, when I tell them that they can have a banana, or they can have an apple, or they should go get a salad. Um, they, it's just contrary to what they've been told by everyone else in their journey with renal disease, because uh, fruits and vegetables contain potassium. The potassium levels might go because you have kidney disease. You can't eat that. So what do they end up eating? They eat uh, a ham and cheese sandwich on white bread, or they'll grab a bag of potato chips or some french fries. And, uh, and how is that healthy for, uh, any, for anybody? And then specifically a body that has kidney disease. So I tell them stuff that is, uh, you know, they'll burn me at the stake if, you know, um, this is totally against the grain, but, uh, patients like hearing it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's that thing you always want what you can't have. And, uh, people have had a lifetime to eat fruits and vegetables, but once they have kidney disease, they can't. And when I tell them, they can't have an apple or banana. It's, you know, they, they can't wait to devour it. 
Um, it's, yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I know that a lot of diabetic patients are told the same thing. My mother-in-law, she's had diabetes for years. The nutritionist that she's worked with has said, you can't eat fruit. Meanwhile, other people are bringing her ice cream and cookies and things like that. And it just, doc does not seem to make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. Right, exactly. And I, I you know, I'm glad that you mentioned the diabetes. I had uh, uh, the, the, the VA, now that I'm out of the VA, I can freely talk about the VA. The VA would frustrate me uh, to no end. Uh, I remember working there as a fellow, and uh, they're stuck in this just governmental philosophy that, the you know, the food pyramid and what you eat and these things. And uh, so many of my diabetic patients that had that would go on to have kidney disease would come to me and say, what should I eat for my kidneys? And I tell them fruits and vegetables. And they would say, well, I can't have fruits and vegetables for because of my kidneys and because of diabetes. And I would undo what the dietitian did, and then they would go back and see the diabetes team, and then uh, could be a doctor or a nurse, and they would undo what I told them. They would come back to me, and round and round we go. But um, hopefully, the, this information percolates, uh, you know, through PCRM and this conference and other people who are uh, trying to uh, turn the the tide, and people start eating healthier, and they stop eating uh, processed bread and processed uh, meats and you know cheddar cheese american cheese uh, i never even i never liked american cheese even when i did eat cheese it's disgusting <laughs> is it is it even cheese i mean that really yeah. is the question yeah uh, we hear so much with plant-based diets about their effect on diabetes. You, you, we hear about people who will go on them and completely reverse it. Same thing with a lot of cases of, of heart disease. Is the same, does the same hold true for kidney disease? Can we see a complete reversal? Yeah, so this is, this is the, the controversial uh, part. We have very limited evidence, but the evidence does exist. And um, uh, it didn't exist with diet. So what we do know is that if, if you have uh, kidney disease caused by diabetes, and like you said, you can treat the diabetes, we think that if you can get rid of your diabetes for long enough or control it for long enough, you could potentially create an environment for the kidney where it could start to get better. I don't have direct proof of it. It doesn't exist. But there was a study done, I believe, in France or Italy, and they published this paper now 10 or 15 years ago. And what they did is they basically reversed diabetes in people who had type 1 diabetes. They gave them pancreas transplants. And uh, what they saw on the kidneys, they did biopsies over time. The kidneys actually had diabetes, diabetic changes in them. They had diabetes in the kidney, basically. And because they got a pancreas transplant that cured their type 1 diabetes, the kidneys got better over time. Once they got rid of diabetes, all those changes that were just classic for diabetes in the kidney got better. It's amazing. It took five, 10 years, um, but it, it just goes to show that this, what we thought was a one-way road is maybe actually a two-way street. So it just goes to show that um, it's never really too late to, to get it, uh, start getting healthy. In 2017, I believe, three years ago, there were a couple of studies that came out that uh, caught our eye here at the Physicians Committee, one of which in particular said that if you replace one serving of red meat with legumes, your, your risk of having kidney disease was cut by a third. I'm sure you're familiar with that one. 
Yeah, there's been a few of these studies that show um, it's basically that they've done these substitution analyses. Yeah, and that's probably is the the Herring paper uh, from 2017. They show exactly what you said: replacing one serving of red processed meat uh, with, associ- uh, with legumes associated with 31% reduced risk of kidney disease. There's another paper that actually shows a similar finding, uh, which is even a larger effect. Uh, this was the Loop paper from 2017. They show that replacing one serving of red meat with soy and legumes was associated with a 50% reduced risk of developing kidney failure. Uh, and there's uh, other similar studies like this, um, which I'm going to talk about in my in my presentation. Um, uh, but yeah, if, if people people this is all observational evidence, but uh, the signal within the observational evidence uh, seems to be recurrent and it seems to be significant. Um, so based on that information, we, we believe that by making these changes, because food is a, a zero sum game by not eating something else, you're eating, uh, something in replace of it. You could make, uh, important changes in your health. When it comes to overall kidney function, is it not, is it more than just the animal proteins that can be detrimental? Cause I know specifically we were just talking about processed meat. How much of a role does sodium play in terms of kidney health? Yes. Sodium plays a big role. Sodium has, has been uh, an enemy of the kidney for a long time and uh, both an enemy and a friend depends, you know, excess of too much is never a good thing. Um, Unless if it's uh, plant foods, which I guess then you really you really uh, are okay. Uh, but uh, sodium sodium uh, you know worsens high blood pressure. It, it's bad for people who have uh, high blood pressure eating too much. So you want to cut back on your sodium. Uh, this sodium uh, uh, can uh, make it uh, make the job of what the kidney does a little bit harder because if you have kidney disease and the kidneys can't get rid of that sodium, people start to develop swelling. So that's a, a classic uh, thing that we see uh, as kidney doctors. You know, someone who says that they have swelling in their hands or they're more often their feet, um, that just could be too much sodium in their diet. Maybe they're not able to get rid of it too. Um, and it's accumulating in their legs. I know one area of interest uh, for you is fad diets. You've done research on those. And, uh, you know, there's cheese, Louise. Are there just a million and one of them out there? Have you found any one that is perhaps more detrimental to kidney health than another? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to be unhealthy, we found uh, over time. And that, that goes for a lot of different diseases. Uh, just eating on the standard American diet can do, uh, uh, can do some bad things. Um, I had a patient in fellowship who just really had bad diabetes and he's someone that I thought wouldn't need a transplant for years. Uh, but within the same year, his kidneys declined rapidly and, uh, he ended up having diabetes in his kidney and he ended up needing a transplant before I finished my fellowship. Uh, so just a standard American diet can do a lot of bad things, full of salt, full of uh, unhealthy fat, saturated trans fat, full of calories, a lot of processed food, cholesterol. Um, so like, it's, it's, it's terrible for you. But uh, fat diets can also be bad for you too. I think the keto diet, even though we don't have a lot of robust evidence, 
uh, I think is detrimental uh, for the kidneys. One, it can cause kidney stones. Two, I think it's a very acid-forming acid diet, uh, which is important uh, for people who have kidney disease. You actually want to eat a, a, a base-forming diet, so the other end of the pH, uh, basically an alkaline diet, which is fruits and vegetables, which the keto diet limits severely. Um, and uh, the protein content uh, uh, causes kidneys to essentially work harder than they should. So uh, high-protein diets, so, uh, which uh, many fad diets emphasize protein for their purported you know, weight-reducing uh, uh, effects, uh, I think those are bad for the kidneys too. I'm glad that you brought up kidney stones because I think back to an article earlier this year, actor, I'm sure that you saw this one. Liam Helmsworth blames his vegan diet, says that it gave him kidney stones. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I I heard about it. Uh, You know, um, and then I, I, there, like I said, there's a lot of ways to be unhealthy. There's a lot of ways, um, uh, you know, to also get kidney stones. Uh, It's possible um, to get kidney stones eating a vegan uh, or plant-based diet. And, uh, you know, the way to do that would be to eat a lot of spinach, eat a lot of foods that have a lot of oxalate, just live off. You know, I'm not talking just, you know, you had a spinach salad for lunch yesterday. Should you be worried? That, that's not going to do it. it. What I'm talking about is taking like bags of spinach you buy from a grocery store, blending them in a smoothie and then doing three or four of those smoothies every day. I'm talking really large amounts of, you know, oxalate from spinach or rhubarb or beets or star fruit. Just, you know, you, if you wanted to get a kidney stone eating plant, you could, you know, you know, if you wanted to get in a car accident while wearing your seatbelt, you could, you know, it's, uh, you know, there, there are ways to, to, to cause yourself harm, even though you're doing, you know, things that are uh, good for you. Uh, so why he quit uh, veganism uh, specifically, I don't know. Um, uh, I think he broke up from Miley at the time, and you know I play into it because Miley, you know, is plant based, and did she, you know, was she influencing him? We don't know. You know, were there other things involved? With this? We'll never know the details. But uh, I, I, I treat a lot of people with stones, and the things I tell them actually, the standard American diet will give you stones. I got, I, I personally had stones eating standard American diet. I was in high school. I was trying to get on a football team, trying to bulk up, uh, you know, trying to eat more protein. And I ate those TV dinners, those, you know, those dinners, you grocery stores, you heat them up like beefy man or hearty man, whatever it is. Hungry man. Hungry, Hungry man. man. And I ate two or three of them a day. And uh, within a month, I had a kidney stone. And I didn't know, but that is the perfect way to get a kidney stone. You you live in Florida, so no water, which is why I even, I still drink water in summer and drinking water all the time. Uh, tons of sodium. The sodium, sodium gives you a kidney stone, and uh, and then also animal protein. Animal protein is acid forming, and it just you know creates that right chemistry uh, mixture in your urine to form a stone. So, uh, if 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 plant based diets were universally giving people stones, I think everyone, every every single person on a plant based diet would be would be seeing me, and I, I don't see every plant based person in Manhattan or New York city or in U S because they're having stones. So if you, if people have a stone, it's because it's something very specific, you know, maybe they are doing too little, too much of that spinach or they didn't drink enough water or they're eating, you know, too much sodium. And I see that a lot. 
I can't imagine that there are too many high school age kids who develop kidney stones. You said that that took you about a month of TV dinners. That seems pretty, pretty fast to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, you just have to, I, maybe I wasn't hydrating, uh, but Florida is a stone bill. A lot of people do get stones. Um, a lot of these warmer places, uh, Texas, Southern States where it's hot, uh, people don't drink enough. You're sweating. Um, you can get a stone. I want to go back uh, before we kind of try to wrap this up a little bit. I want to go back to what you were talking about potassium here, um, because I'm sure that somebody who's watching this, listening to this right now is probably saying, well, go back there. Let's, let's zero in on bananas again. You just talked about eating bags and bags of spinach every day. What would happen then if somebody ate, say, a half dozen bananas every single day? Would that then be potassium overload and put the patient at risk? I, to be honest, I, I don't know. I don't know specifically the half does. It depends on a few things. Um, it's, it depends on how bad their kidneys are. It depends on if they're on other medications um, that might raise their blood potassium levels. It depends on if they have diabetes. Diabetes, in, the, in many cases, can raise blood potassium levels. Are they constipated or are they not? But what we, what we do know from the literature is that if you eat a plant-based diet and you eat like salads or a fruit bowl, uh, you should not end up having a higher potassium level. Um, what can cause it is juice. Juice is basically this uh, extract of fruit. And if you take a, a, since I'm from Florida, you take a cup of uh, OJ, like you fill this up with OJ, this, this is filled up with orange juice, maybe four oranges. No one sits down to eat four oranges in a sitting. And that's where people run into trouble is that they get potassium through these concentrated forms like juices, like sauces, Dried fruit's another problem. So I tell people, if you're eating whole fresh fruit, you're eating salads, you're eating vegetables, not in a pureed or a sauce or juice form or dried form, you should be okay. And, you know, as an extra insurance policy, we check potassium levels when people are in that transition phase to make sure everything's going okay. They understand what I'm saying. I understand what they're doing. And we have the proof to show that it's safe. So... Final question for you, Doc, is uh, actually one from a viewer. I've been sitting on this one uh, knowing that you and I were going to speak eventually. And this is this person has written in a number of times, so I'm so glad that we get to ask this one today. It says, hi, I have stage three chronic kidney disease and I drink a lot of water every day. What diet should I follow? I am diabetic, which is under control, but my weight is an issue because I'm disabled. So a lot going on there. Any advice? Yeah. Like I said, the the diet that uh, I don't want to speak in uh, specifics, but it's, you know, in generalities in that person uh, for those types of people, um, uh, whole food plant-based diet, you know, it, it works. And, you know, probably the reason patients are so confused is that they go and they hear, oh, you can't eat too many fresh fruits and vegetables because you have kidney disease. You can't eat foods with a high glycemic index because you have diabetes. Oh, you you have obesity. You need to eat high protein. Then you have to like put all these together on your own. And you know some of the information isn't even out there, like phosphate levels in food. It's not on a nutrition label, and it's confusing. It's overwhelming. And then you know patients end up eating what they want to eat. Um, so what I tell people is that for the most part, in many many cases, ninety percent of cases, the best diet is a whole food plant based diet. Why is it for in this situation? good for the kidneys, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, 
uh, base, a lot of uh, alkali, natural alkali, which is good for your kidneys, not a whole lot of sodium, which is good. There is potassium, but the kidney function is, is pretty good. It's stage three, so hopefully we'll be able to take care of it. The fiber in the plant foods will also help with constipation, uh, keep bowel movements regular, which gets rid of potassium too, which I like. And then, uh, you know, plant, whole food plant-based diet is good also for weight. Uh, as you know, personally, weight loss champion, and, uh, and also for diabetes. Uh, a lot of good research uh, coming out that these high-fiber foods are good for helping people um, with their diabetes. So it's a win-win-win. It, it absolutely is. And I will say, from my experience, it's more than just losing weight. What this diet enables you to do is to keep it off long-term and really, as I say, cut the string on that yo-yo and take yo-yo dieting completely out of the equation because your diet is no longer calorically dense, but it sure as heck is nutri- uh, nutrient dense. And so that is the biggest upside that I see to this diet and sustained weight loss. So, uh, Doc, I really feel like we have really only scratched the surface on what it is you're going to be talking about at ICNM here in a few weeks. Uh, I had an opportunity to glance at your presentation, man, and you have a wealth of information in there. Yeah, it's how it always is. Just never enough time to talk about it all. But hopefully I get a chance to go in more detail during that uh, presentation in August. August 6th through 8th, pcrm.org slash ICNM is the place to go to register. Dr. Shivam Joshi, thank you so very much for your time today, my friend. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. In addition to the link to register for ICNM, you can also find a link to follow Dr. Joshi on Twitter and check out his website, Afternoon Rounds. All of that is in the episode notes. Dr. Joshi is a funny guy, and I really think you're going to enjoy his presentation at ICNM if you register. So head over to pcrm.org slash ICNM and sign up today. That's August 6th through 8th, by the way. But before we move on, I want to ask you a question. What do you get when you cross green bananas and discarded grapes? Now, I promise you, this is not the setup for some horrible joke. So what do you get when you cross green bananas with discarded grapes? Well, if you guessed vegan lunch meat, you win. Hungarian-based Plantcraft is launching a line of mock meats that are made from the not-yet-yellow fruit, as well as seeds from grapes that have been used to make wine. They are the staples for the Plantcraft product line, which includes mock ham, pepperoni, and, ooh, how fancy is this, plant-based pate. Each meat is made from seven ingredients or less, according to the company's website. I tell you what, that is innovation right there. If you can make meat from green bananas and discarded grapes, my friend, you definitely paid attention in science class. That is outstanding right there. Okay, somebody else who is paying attention in class is my next guest. She is someone to keep an eye on and proof that there is hope for a healthier future. She is a medical student in Texas who is thriving on a plant-based diet and studying culinary medicine. She's also a social media star with tens of thousands of followers, inspiring them to live healthier lives and, in turn, create healthier communities. 
please welcome Beats by Brooke, Brooklyn to the exam room. Brooklyn, how are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great as well. First, let's let's see how things are in Texas. We're hearing that that is one of the states that is really just being smacked by this uh, resurgence in coronavirus cases. How are things where you are? Yeah, absolutely. It is honestly pretty concerning. Kind of like it's somehow being cool to shame people for wearing masks. And I think this widespread, really weird peer pressure to not wear masks is very interesting. Um, if we look at it from a grand scale, I feel like it's something people aren't talking about. And so I definitely am concerned, especially now being in medical school, you know, my peers, my colleagues, my professors, they're at the front lines. And it really is heartbreaking that people aren't taking this seriously. Um, and knowing how many people, including those in healthcare, those who are older, more susceptible are at you know greater risk push back uh not in your social media bubble because obviously your followers are big believers in plant-based diets and, and nutrition by and large but you know outside of the online world among your actual peers and your fellow medical students are you getting pushback because you are you know pushing for masks and then also really pushing for the plant-based diet, those healthier options, and against that, let's eat more meat kind of mentality. Yeah, so I am pleasantly, you know, happy to share that. My my peers, they definitely are for masks. They are some of the most cautious people I know, um, which I'm really grateful. And honestly, I do believe that social media has allowed me to kind of have this form of a credibility in terms of pushing this lifestyle. I think that right now in, you know, 2020, social media is the age um you know, is a language that a lot of people understand. Um, and so I'm really grateful for my platform being able to share that. And I haven't had as much pushback as I thought. There's actually a lot of other plant-based medical students, which I was really surprised by. My school, I'm so honored, has a culinary medicine class where they really do um, emphasize um, that, you know, the more plants, the better. So all in all, I really have been pleasantly surprised with my um, some of my professors and my peers. Really? So, okay. Did you, you just said that you had a class that really focuses on, on, you know, plant-based eating. Is that right? Yeah. So it is not fully plant-based. I will say that, but the whole premise of it is meeting patients where they're at. And, you know, if someone has a very animal-based heavy diet, you know, a lot of times, especially for people in underserved communities, it's not going to be able to, it's not going to be as feasible to make that jump. And so really the basis of it is to incorporate plants, but in a way that works for your patient. And so I'm super honored. It's called culinary medicine. I'm like the biggest supporter of it. And I'm so glad my school offers it. Unfortunately, it is not only optional, but there's limited spots. So not everyone could take it. But it's just been really great because it's very hands-on. And kind of the premise behind that is if future doctors can not only learn better ways to cook, but can also learn how it's applicable in a clinical setting, then they're able to just have some of these skills to bring it to the patient room. That is phenomenal. I'm so glad to hear that because so often, and one of the things that we work on here at the Physicians Committee is really trying to push medical schools to incorporate more about nutrition into their curriculums because by and large, in most cases, that really is not in any of the books that the students are learning from. Yeah, it's been really fascinating because it's one of those things for before I got into medical school, I kept hearing like, oh, doctors don't get training, don't get training. And now I'm actually here 
witnessing it. And it is a little discouraging, aside from the fact that my school does have culinary medicine. And it's one of the things that I've learned is that it's not even just having the content, but providing the content in a way that is really going to be applicable. Because you can ramble off a bunch of facts about food and nutrition, but if you don't say it, like, help educate how to apply that to patients. Um, I don't believe it's really going to be effective. And at the end of the day, um, students are just going to be left a little bit confused, especially if they don't have a background in it. And so I'm really grateful for culinary medicine. Obviously, the COVID situation has made it different because we do cook in class, but we are working on an online version. And I am the co-president of our school's preventive and lifestyle medicine organization. And we're actually working on creating a preventative um, optional elective for students to really complement our curriculum and integrate different ways where we can you know, really help patients in terms of lifestyle and preventive medicine. You said that there were only a limited number of spots, but that tells me that there's, you know, greater interest because not everybody could get in. Are a lot of your peers really on board with this concept? Absolutely. And there's a lot of different, you know, appeals to culinary medicine. First of all, you do cook and you get dinner. And so that is one option for it. And some people, I will say, kind of go for that. And some people are truly interested in nutrition. So yeah, I think it was at least half my class. So over 100 students, I think, signed up, um, which breaks my heart. And just huge shout out to Dr. Alvin and Millette. They are the doctor dietitian duo who lead the class. Um, and they do this all because they're just so passionate about future doctors having this information. So I'm really grateful. I am a little worried that not having that actual cooking, you know, aspect of it will make people not want to be as interested in maybe the virtual version, but I definitely have hopes and I'm really grateful that a lot of my peers seem to at least be curious about it. Man, that sounds great. That kind of reminds me of what uh, Dr. Baxter Montgomery is doing uh, in Alabama. He's really taking that approach and taking it uh, heavily with his patients. It's it's extraordinary what he's been able to piece together. Um, I want to ask you about your story here as well. Uh, you know, were you born into a plant-based diet or is this something that you kind of picked up along the way? What inspired you? Yeah, for sure. So for me in middle school is actually where I became vegetarian. I think it was partially curiosity. Um, I had been overweight my entire life and that was just kind of my build. And so when I did cut out meat, I noticed a lot of positive health changes. I, ha I was kind of that person who always was friends of like the one vegan at school. Um, but I kept telling myself like, no, you love cheese too much. It's not an option. But it was actually the day that brought me to a plant-based vegan lifestyle. That was the day I decided to become a doctor. And so that's why, you know, being on this with Dr. Bernard is such an honor because he really was on um one of the documentaries that really inspired me and so after that i really just found myself you know confused and honestly frustrated that we had so much research supporting nutrition and how it impacts all different aspects of medicine. And yet that wasn't the main part of medicine. And I, you know, even personally, none of my doctor's visits talked about diet. If anything, they kind of just laughed at me for being vegetarian, vegan. And so that really was a change. So I became plant-based in high school. So it's about seven years now. And that is ultimately what also brought me to medicine. Ah, that's outstanding. Uh, early adopter. I love that. How did your friends react when you went plant-based in high school? There's a lot of peer pressure at, the, at that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, mind you, sometimes I kind of forget stuff like that. But all in all, I think people were kind of curious. No one was ever like outwardly, um, you know, rude or anything like that. But I would be lying if I said the social aspect is a huge part of it, right? I was able to take the um, plant-based certification course through eCornell, and they really bring that up in a beautiful way that your social circle um, 
how you think it will fit in is a huge determinant of whether or not you're going to make changes. And at the end of the day, like sometimes there are awkward food situations. Sometimes your friend's not going to invite you to that Korean barbecue um, hangout. And it's one of those things where um, I think the more confident you can be in it, the more you can really just remember your why, um, the better it's going to be. And uh, Dr. Baxter Montgomery, I, I don't know if I said Alabama or not. Uh, he's actually in Houston. So if you're not familiar with him, he is definitely somebody that I would take some time and, and look up and see if you can connect with, because I think that the two of you are very like-minded um, in that regard. Uh, I, I need to ask you here, because clearly the impact of COVID-19 is being felt disproportionately among uh, minorities here. Uh, matter of fact, African-Americans five times more likely to uh, become infected than whites. Um, What can be done? What can we all do to kind of help bridge that gap? Absolutely. So this is definitely a tricky situation, right? And we all know there's a lot of different layers to it. I think at the end of the day, a big kind of one of the things that kind of brings it to it is a lot of distrust in the African-American community. Um, A lot of us are familiar with just a lot of medical historic racism. um, And I think it would be kind of ignorant to believe that that doesn't impact today. And so it's one of those things where I believe that a lot of times there's going to be, we're just going to be not as trusting. Um, And I think diversity in media in specifically healthcare media is very, very valuable because at the end of the day, we're all human. We want to see, ourselves represented. And if you have people who don't look like you, who maybe you've had bad experience with, maybe your family's had bad experiences with, you're going to be less likely to naturally trust them. And I think that's a very human thing. And so I believe that, you know, emphasizing and prioritizing diversity in healthcare, specifically healthcare media is really valuable. And I think would do really good just in terms of people being more trusting because they're represented more. Given that, are you feeling just an inordinate amount of pressure right now, knowing that you have this platform and it is so desperately needed? Absolutely. I'm not going to lie. It has been a lot of pressure and I've had a lot of mixed feelings, all things considering. Um, so I am an, also an MPH student. I'm doing a dual degree. And so this summer, while I have those classes, things are a lot more free. And it's really been a combination of feeling this pressure, but also, you know, taking that responsibility with pride and a lot of honor. I'm so just you know, endlessly grateful for having a platform, having a voice, um, and something I do not take lightly. And at the end of the day, yeah, the pressure can be a lot, especially when, you know, your page is growing really fast. And so I definitely would be lying if I said, I'm still kind of trying to figure out that balance. But at the end of the day, social media for me has always been an extension of my public health interest, an extension of wanting to educate health. And so I'm just grateful to have the opportunity. And what what is your thought on this time in particular when so many people across all races are finally listening to the problems that have been going on because that light is just so brightly being shown on everything that has been occurring for so long, but the majority of us have been turning a blind eye to or didn't even recognize that it was there. What are your thoughts on this time right now? And do you think that really the tide is finally going to turn for everything, including health? Absolutely. And so at first it was hard not to kind of look at the negatives. Obviously, 
I was heartbroken about George Floyd. My family's in Minnesota. It was a really hard time for me. But later, I have been trying to look at the positives. And I honestly am feeling very hopeful. Um, it's kind of like a relief. The way I explain it is that it seems like people, specifically African-Americans, who've been trying to share these issues, it feels like we've been, you know, alone in an open field, right? Just yelling and yelling and no one's there. And it kind of feels like slowly people are just starting to come, you know, our voices are hoarse, but we're finally being heard. And it is really gratifying. And I really do think moving forward, people have to listen, you know, and I think the ones, one of the beautiful things about it with so many brands and people speaking out is that those who want to ignore it are having a really hard time doing so. And so I think it's really important um, for brands to speak out. I know some people think that it's not necessarily their place, but I think it's so valuable. And, you know, when the um, y'all's page spoke out, I thought it was just so important because people need to understand that at the end of the day, discrimination and race impacts all components of life, including health and honestly, especially health. And that was one of the things that I was already interested in medicine and nutrition. But when it really came to my attention that a lot of these lifestyle illnesses, a lot of these disparities impacted people of color disproportionately, I was all in. And this was really become my life's mission. I think, you know, for as much criticism as there can be for social media, I think that that's really helping to drive change right now as well. Because as you just said, it's nearly impossible for anyone to turn a blind eye to it because everyone has a platform now, some larger than others. And the voices are just being amplified millions of times over. And I think that that truly, again, despite everything, the negative that comes with it, there's so much more upside to it because that is eventually what will help spur this change. Absolutely. And I think it's very fascinating because early in my um, medical school career, I was in social media, but I felt kind of embarrassed to bring it up because to me, it's always been kind of clear the power because at the end of the day, you know, public health is about reaching people and what better way to reach people than on platforms where everyone's at all the time. And I think this whole situation has really made it undeniable how powerful social media is. And just, you know, I can't wait to look back at the history books and how they talk about, you know, Instagram, these lives, Facebook, and how just impactful it was, you know, this whole situation would have been the same, both with um, the Black Lives Matter movement on top of COVID. And so I think now we're get, getting to the point where people can't deny that. And for me personally, being really interested in it and being aware of the potential, it's pretty exciting. My goodness. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's wrap things up on a, on a more positive note. One of the, the ways, um, or a lighter note, I should say, because that was absolutely positive. Uh, one of the ways that people are reached best is through their stomach. And I know that you, you love to cook. You are in that culinary medicine class. So is there on this Friday, is there a recipe that you might want to share that you think that our viewers might really get, uh, some enjoyment out of over the weekend? Yeah, so a recipe that I have was this kind of more nutritious, fiber-packed um, chili cheese fries. And so I really believe, especially, you know, trying to understand all aspects of nutrition, both mental, familial, comfort, to really kind of take recipes we know and love and how can we just move it on that spectrum of nutritiousness. And so I do have um, a recipe on my page where I bake sweet potato fries with no oil, no salt. I take like a super fiber heavy bean chili and then put a cashew based um, queso sauce on top with a bunch of, you know, green onions, um, regular onions, and just, you know, it's so savory, it's so hearty, and yet you're getting a bunch of nutrients in it. And so I think that's a really great way to do it. You know, how can we take some things that we love that we get at restaurants that would be really high in sodium? And how can we just do small changes here and there to still keep that heartiness, still keep that comfort, but making us feel amazing afterwards? 
Ooh, giddy up. That sounds great. Is that uh, is that up on your Instagram page or where can people find that? Yeah, so if you go to my page, scroll down just a little bit, I'm holding a plate of fries and I think you can see my cat Sebastian in the corner so you can look out for that. All right, at Beats by Brooke on Instagram. Just a great follow. Thank you so very much. I would love to keep in contact with you. You are truly just an extraordinary person and a mover and a shaker. And I cannot wait to see what the future holds for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. We will definitely be hearing more from Brooklyn in the future. Matter of fact, I would venture to say sooner rather than later. She is definitely one to keep an eye on. And you can grab a link to follow her on Instagram in the episode notes or just look for Beats by Brooke. Before we wrap up the show today, I just wanted to take a second to talk a little bit more about the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. We'll talk to you some more about the speakers who are going to be there in addition to Dr. Joshi. To put this in baseball parlance, because there are people in the office who are super giddy that baseball is coming back. Talking to you, Noah Kaufman. Talking to you, Laura Anderson. So in baseball parlance, the speakers at ICNM, this is the heart of the order. We're talking about the three, four, five hitters, right? It is a who's who in the medical community. So many big names. Dr. Michael Greger, Dr. Kim Williams, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Daniel Bellardo, Dr. Walter Willett, Dr. David Katz, our own doctors, Hanna Kaliova, Vanita Rahman, Jasmine Sardana, so many big names. And then, of course, you've got the wonderful dietitian, the fiber queen, Lee Crosby. A lot of people are going to be speaking at ICNM this year. That's August 6th through 8th. And you can head over and register for that right now. PCRM.org slash ICNM completely online this year for the very first time. PCRM.org slash ICNM. Three days of education like you would not believe. And yes, CME credits are available. And finally, before we wrap up today, just want to ask a favor from you. If you haven't already done so, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available, and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee. Because when you do that, you will be helping people get this potentially life-saving information. Think about that. We spoke about one out of every seven adults in the U.S. having chronic kidney disease. And 90% of them having no idea that they do. So it's really important that everyone listen up, pay attention to their health and what it is that we're teaching on this show. So how can we help people find this information? Simple, by subscribing to the exam room podcast by the Physicians Committee, because the more subscriptions we receive, the higher we climb in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the more promotion we get and the easier it becomes for people to find us and get on a healthier track toward a brighter future. I want to say thank you again to Dr. Shivam Joshi and Dr. Tabi 
Brooklyn, aka Beats by Brooke, for joining us here today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>